Um, if, you've, if you've been with us all semester or if you're just joining us, it's important for you to know where we're at in the big picture. Um, we are looking all semester long at uh, Jesus in the Old Testament where He shows up. And so tonight we continue in that from this very, very uh, obscure text from a, a, a book that you probably have never read all of. And that is the prophet Ezekiel. Um, I don't know how many of you were shocked when you were listening to what was going on in this text, but it's meant to be incredibly shocking. So if you were kind of jarred a little bit, that's how it's supposed to be read. And so we're going to look at that tonight. Um, For starters, I don't know if you've ever watched the movie uh, in 2009 that came out called 500 Days of Summer. Um, starring Joseph Gordon-Levitt and uh, uh, Zoe Deschanel. Thank you. I'm trying to remember that. Um, Summer is uh, Zoe. Tom is played by uh, Gordon, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. And he, um, there is a scene where they're standing by, they're a couple, they've been dating, they're standing by this elevator. And this scene in, uh, unfolds. Are you ready for it? I'll read you the script. Tom, look, we don't have to go put a label on it. That's fine. I get it. But you know, I just, I need some constancy, Summer says. I know. Tom says, I need to know that you're not going to wake up in the morning and feel differently. And she says, I can't give you that. Nobody can. And after watching that scene, your stomach drops and you begin to ask, listen, is, is that really the way that love goes? Is it true that nobody can give you a constancy, a love that lasts? See, Summer and the majority of our culture would say no. In fact, many of us, including myself, have experienced the real pain of a love that no longer lasts, wondering if anybody, if anybody will stay put for us, I mean with us, for the long haul. It is something believe it or not, that we share in common with this first audience in Ezekiel. They, too, were wondering about the constancy of love. You see, at this point in history, God's people, Israel, or the bride of Christ, had come underneath the judgment of God Himself. Their idolatry and running away from them, from Him had got for themselves His heavy hand of judgment. And that judgment was expressed by God sending the Babylonians to come exile His people and take them out of their homeland into the land of Babylon. What's most shocking about it all was something you may have heard me say, but I went really quickly over it, was that God Himself had done it. He was the hand acting behind it all. So they too were suspicious, even hopeless, about God's own love for them. But, what if? What if there really was a sort of faithfulness that you could bank on? What if there really was an intimate lover that would never bail? They would see you, warts and all, and never laugh, nor scoff, nor yawn at what they saw in you. What if that really existed? You see, this sort of love is what is on display in our text today. And at its core, it is a story of God's costly love for His people. That's what we're going to look at today. 
But before we do, I need to mention one key thing. When the Scriptures conceptualize the relationship that God has with His people, it talks about it in several different ways. Perhaps if you're familiar with the Bible, you know of the shepherd and sheep relationship, where God is the shepherd of His people called the sheep, and that shows forth that God is a protector, so to speak. But the strongest and most intimate picture is that of a lover with his woman, a husband with his bride. God is the husband, and his people are the wife bride. This communicates, you guys, this, that God, at his core, is a lover, that he is a spouse. And this understanding is what lies at the heart of Ezekiel 16. Human sexuality, in other words, is a metaphor for a deeper reality, namely the love affair between God and His people. And you need to know that tonight if you're going to make any, make any sense of what we're going to talk about. Tonight is the story, you guys, of God taking for Himself a wife. Her falling in love, however, with lesser lovers and Him stopping at nothing to rescue her and win her back. It is the story of royalty ruined and restored. It is the picture of the faithfulness of God despite the sin of His people. And my hope for you tonight is this. Listen, my hope is this. I want you to see the mercy of God that it outlasts and outdoes our deepest and most profound sin. And by seeing that, I want you to marvel. I want you to wonder at the beautiful love that God has for each and every one of you in Christ. In short, because God is unrelentingly faithful, we can actually devote ourselves to Him. I like to suggest the text comes to us in three different acts, like a good play. The first one is called the royal rescue. God's royal rescue. Secondly, The second act being the story of God's people's heinous harlotry. And the last act is that of God's costly consummation. This is a shocking text, both for what it tells us about grace and the gravity of sin. But let's also begin by taking a look at uh, these first few verses here. Verses 3-14, to God's royal rescue. How does the story start? Well, it starts with the collective people of God with very royal beginnings. It's the stuff of the best princess tales, you guys. In these first 14 14 verses, it comes to us in two major scenes. God's people in their infancy and then at young womanhood or the proper time to be married, which was, by the way, in your mid-teens. The story of God's collective people begins as a birth narrative. We see a little girl born. And we've seen her cast aside. We see in these verses that no one cares about her. That she is abandoned. That's the imagery of verses 4 and 5. A baby being left to die. Left out to the elements. And it not mattering to anyone except God. That He comes along, sees the child, and out of sheer grace rescues her. He takes her in and cares for her. Pours out His unwarranted, unmerited favor on her. His grace upon this infant, and it flourishes and grows. 
And then in that second royal scene, we see the baby now has grown. And we see God rescuing her again. This time, He does so not by providing for her, but by marrying her. We see this in verse 8. Listen, I made a vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. This collective people, God's people, has now been wed to Himself. And because the Rescuer was of royal station, because He was a king, His new wife received all of the benefits of that marriage. He gladly lavished on her the richest clothes, the most expensive jewelry, verses 11 and 12, the best food, verse 13. She, who was once left to die, has now found herself, apart from anything that she has done, in the king's palace with the king's blessings. But listen, she is in the king's bed because he loves her so much. He has taken her to be his woman. She was royalty incarnate because of the great love and kindness of the rescuer king. If you've ever seen the movie Taken, you get a little bit of sense of what I'm talking about. Liam Neeson has character, you know, his daughter has been swept away, has been kidnapped, and she's soon to be exploited through sex trafficking. The father will stop at nothing to go get her because of his great love and enjoyment in her. If you've seen that movie, you get a sense of what is going on in this text. God has rescued her. She doesn't, she cannot do anything to make Him love her. His coming for her is because of His own great love for her. Why might this be significant for us today? First of all, it makes us realize that the basis for a relationship with God, listen, has nothing, nothing to do with you. Nothing. You're helpless. You are that baby that has been cast aside that nobody wanted. But God in His great love and compassion for you has taken you in. It is all of sheer grace that God would have anything to do with you. Not your best moral efforts. Not your best grades. Not your appearance. Not how successful you might be. Not how obedient you are to your parents or to any sort of authority. It has everything to do with the grace of God. This forces us then to ask this question. Who initiated the relationship between you and God? I mean, how many times do you hear this language? Well, I accepted Jesus into my heart and in my life. Well, I guess that's true at one point. But you didn't start that business. God did. God did. That's what led the Apostle John to say this. We love... Because He first loved us. And why would this be so profound? Listen, this means because it has nothing to do with you, it means that you are never, therefore, outside of the reach of God's grace. Do you see that? It has nothing to do with who you are as a person. It has everything to do with God and His grace. And because of that, you cannot, you can't be a bad enough person. Not if God sets His favor and affection on you. And that ought to warm you 
and stir you because if you're like me, you're a screw-up. If you're like me, you've ruined things. If you're like me, you have real hate in your heart. If you're like me, you really are like the woman that we're about to see in this text. You see, that's where we go next. We see that this royal bride brought up from nothing is about to blow it all. And I don't mean in a small way either. You see, the bride of this kingly, kingly man has now become, the text tells us, a whore. A whore. That's where we're going. Let's take a look at the people's heinous harlotry on display for us in the bulk of this text. That's why we read it. I wanted you to sit in it so that you could feel it. All After all that God had given to her, God's bride now has spent it all and given herself away to countless other lovers. His bride, His people, commit adultery, that is, idolatry, by running to other lovers, that is, gods. In short, the royal wife turns to the life of a prostitute. The text tells us that she uses the jewels and the clothing and the children that He gave her to allure the affections of other lovers. While I can't go into all the details, I do want to show you a couple, so just that you get a sense of what's going on here. In verse 25, we see how heinous her harlotry is. The text tells us, quote, that she is offering yourself to any passerbys and multiplying your whoring. Do you see that there in verse 25? Well, look, if you're in your Bible, you'll see it there. There's actually a footnote. The English translations tame it way down. They make it PG where it is X-rated. Because actually the Hebrew says, not that you offer yourself, it says that you at every corner spread your legs. I'll let you fill in the blanks for what that means. And as if that weren't bad enough, listen to what else goes on in verse 33. The most searing of indictments comes against her. Ezekiel says, listen, you are worse than a prostitute. You see, for a prostitute, at least accepts pay for her sexual services. Do you know what you do, Israel? You pay people to come have sex with you. You're a prostitute like nobody has ever seen in the entire world because you give yourself to other people and you pay them to come into you. The language couldn't be more stark. It couldn't be more jarring. And that's what God's people are identified with. So what is God going to do in light of all of this? He is showing us in intimate terms how He views the rejecting of His love. Something that you and me have continually done. The original audience as well had rejected God's devotion, God and their devotion and had given themselves over to lesser gods. And in so doing, they have played the whore. Look, What's the point? How can we drive this home? Well, I think we can glean a couple of things, and they're not pretty. So hold on to your seats, okay? Because they have to do with the darkness called sin. Look, what you need to see 
that what is at the heart of sin, because this is a picture of a husband loving his wife, what is at the heart of sin, as Tim Keller points out, is not the breaking of rules primarily, but by the breaking of a heart. At the heart of sin is you and me not so much breaking God's rules as it is breaking His heart. You see, sure, you break a rule, the first commandment, but you're also breaking His heart. You are in essence saying that that thing, whatever it is, is more lovely and valuable than you, O oh God. College students hate the idea of sin. They think that it's just some old and antiquated concept. Sin, they reason, is just some sort of psychological construct. But when you begin to see it as breaking God's heart, you begin to get at the core of what sin really is. Think about it this way. I'll give you an illustration. Imagine the following scenario. A husband purchasing the finest of dresses and jewelry for his wife. The best makeup to make her look lovely and beautiful. She puts it all on. She adorns herself and heads out to the swanky bar in town. The high-end bar. And she uses all of this dress to draw in the affections of some other man. And it works. And they climb into the car that her husband has bought for her because he's loved her so much. And they go back to her house. They enter into her bedroom. They pull the sheets down. And her clothes come off. And they begin in that moment to have sex while the husband is still in the bed. That's what's going on in this text. That's how heinous and debased things have gotten. I share this with you to ask this question. Do you view your sin that way? Do you view it as that bad? You see, the lover's heart against such a perfect lover the sin can only be seen as nothing but foul and heinous. Can you own it as such? Or do you take one of these minimizing strategies? Do you trivialize it? Look, sure, everybody messes up, but what's the big deal? Or do you blame shift? Well, I never would have done that if he or she or they... What? That's blame shifting. What about do you plead your own rightness in some area? Oh, sure, I messed up here, but look at this over here, how I've got my life together. Lastly, what about this? Do you just deny your sin altogether? It doesn't exist. And so you get to play your own authority in your life. Look, listen to me. If you are a Christian, real Christianity does not downplay the offensiveness of sin. It owns it for what the Bible calls it. This is why Flannery O'Connor once wrote in her short story, Wise Blood, a particular character named this, there was already a deep, black, wordless conviction in him that the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. I invite you tonight to be honest about what is real in you downplay, listen to me, downplay your sin at the expense of real joy. Real grace 
comes to real sin. Hypothetical grace comes to hypothetical sin. If you want to experience the cool, fresh waters of God's grace in your life, you must begin to, beget, to, beget, to get honest about how parched your sin has made you. You must. Look, I invite you tonight for maybe the first time to get honest about what's inside you. If you are willing, you will find real and fresh grace coming to you at every turn. Come, taste and see the goodness of God in Christ to you tonight. If you long for that, I really, I desperately beg you to please pay attention for how we're going now into our third and final point. I want you to begin to really perk up your ears because the story is not over. Israel's sin and your sin and my sin does not have to be the final word about you. Why? Because our great husband does everything to fix our problem and win us back to himself. That's what we're going to look now as we take a look at God's costly consummation in these last few verses. Ezekiel extends this metaphor by saying that God's jealous, passionate love for His people will win out. Their sin will not stop His great love. You see it there in verse 60 toward the end of their text. I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. In other words, in your former days, back where I saw you as a young girl, and I promised that I would be with you forever, that you were mine. I have not forgotten that. And I will not quit that because I love you so much. And no matter how bad things have gotten, I will come after you in great love for you. God will remember, despite the heinousness of her harlotry and her whoredom, the original promises that He made to His bride. In other words, God will remain faithful and take her back despite all that she has done to stab Him in the back and to sleep around with other lovers. This is what is so staggering. How would you respond if it were you? What if your lover treated you that way? If your spouse treated you that way, how would you? I mean, the treachery is deep. Does it get any deeper? The bond has been severed by her. Her sins are too great. How can he do this? There has been real sin. Does God just sweep it under the rug saying, well, let's let bygones be bygones. Let's not talk about all that behavior. No. Because why? He is more serious about your sin and my sin than we are. And so He goes and does something about it. He suffers at great cost to bring His bride back. And you'll notice that the answer comes in verse 63 where He says, I will atone for all that you have done. To atone means to bring back in right relationship by paying in blood for sin. But it wasn't God's sin that He was going to pay for. It was hers. Y'all, it was ours. That's what He was going to do. And where do you see this atonement actually being 
actually happening? Well, you have to fast forward about 600 years in the future. You see, there would be a day where the husband would come and the husband would pay with his own blood to atone for all that she had done. This is why in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, Paul tells us that Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. Christ's costly death consummated, as it were, the marriage once and for all. What God through Ezekiel promised that He would one day do, He accomplishes in Christ. This is how God can say in verse 59, I will deal with you as you have done because Christ, the true husband, will take His prostitute wife's punishment for her. Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. But listen, this is what is so important for you to see. He doesn't just die for her. He dies for her to secure her to Himself forever. That is what we see in Revelation 19. The Apostle John sees something absolutely staggering and beautiful. Listen to what he writes. He says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of many peals of thunder crying out. In other words, the age has ended. Human history is donezo. It is finished. This is the last scene that begins to close it all and usher in a new heavens and a new earth. And what is it? Hallelujah. For the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory and then stop. Why? Why should we give Him the glory? Why should we celebrate? Why should we exult? Because the marriage of the Lamb has come. And His bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright, pure. God's people, who were once known as a whore, are never again called that. They are called the bride forever. What was once lost by her own selfishness and sin was overcome by the blood of her great husband and is made beautiful again once and forever. And at the great cost to Himself, His very death, He makes her once and for all His. Never. Even if she wanted to run after other lovers again, she's not able to. The covenant is everlasting. All of heaven sings about her because she is radiant and beautiful, never to be ruined again. How's that for a Valentine's story? How's that for true love? Let me drive home one point of application. It's going to be a little bit longer than 30 minutes tonight, but it's important. The great love that God has for His people is what human marriage and human sexuality is all about. Human marriage, human sexuality is a pointer to the watching world of how God's great love is for His people. Listen, that means 
that sex itself is a pointer to a greater reality. And because of this, two things come into bear. First, may I urge you, may I urge you, do not let the metaphor sex, I'm talking about human sex, do not let that metaphor eclipse the reality. God's great love for His people. The goal of your life is not sex. It isn't. The goal of your life is Jesus. He is far better than the best of intercourse. I'm being dead serious. That's what this text wants you to know. And secondly, before I move there, that is why the psalmist, I can back this up with this text when he says, in your presence there is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Jesus is better than sex. I'm urging you to begin to believe that. And secondly, this is why the Bible says that sex before marriage, if you are a Christian, ought not to happen. Why? Because, listen, because when you do, it's not so much that there are problems associated with that in the sense of like pregnancy or STDs or anything. That's not what Jesus is primarily concerned about. Look, sex before marriage, listen to me, is that when you participate in it, you are telling another story about God's love for His people. His heart is that His love for His people would be communicated rightly, put bluntly. What does a one-night hookup or stand tell the world about God's love for His people? I've got it for you right here. That it's here today and that it's gone tomorrow. And that's a lie. It says that God will use you for what you can give Him. It says that God is so insecure in Himself that He needs sex to make something of Himself. I hope that you see my point. I urge you that there's a story on display with our sexuality. And God is, that is why the point for Christian sexual ethics is that you refrain from it until you are intimately committed with one person for the rest of your life. That's what's going on here. I have a friend whose wife in real life committed what this story depicts. He had committed himself to her in marriage, and she found his love to not be enough and sought the love of other men. And when he found out, do you know what he did? He stayed. He did not seek divorce, though he most certainly had permission to. And I asked him why he stayed, and he said, because what she did to me is nothing compared to what I've done to God. I've run to other lovers all my life, and he has remained faithful to me. He has done everything to win me back from my faithlessness to him. How can I not do that for my faithless wife? Yes, the pain is unbearable at times. But nothing compares to the pain that Jesus experienced on the cross for His bride, of which I am a part. In turn, this great love for His adulterous wife really has changed her. She is more resolute in their marriage and committed to Him. Our faithful husband, Jesus, remains steadfast in the face of our greatest unfaithfulness to Him. 
He has done everything to secure and win back to Himself His spouse, the church, forever. Do you see your story as the woman depicted in Ezekiel? Can you say, along with the English poet, John Donne, when he writes this about God, take me to you, imprison me, accept you, enthrall me, never shall I be free, nor ever chaste, except you ravish me. Do you see that? Do you see in Christ that God loves you despite your faithlessness with His spousal love? Look, He lavishes all that He has on you. All the riches of heaven itself. I want you to see this is for you tonight. Do you? Will you? Will you receive it? Will you own it as your own? Let's pray.